Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1054 with Joe Pine. That if you design a service that is so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event, turn it into an experience. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode made possible by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's Total Oil Management automates your entire cooking oil process. With Total Oil Management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, use cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal storage collection and recycling conveniently safely and cleanly with no upfront cost restaurant technologies inc is always on so you don't have to be to learn more head to rti-inc.com and let them know restaurant unstoppable podcast sent you their way This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and your labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time creating great guest experience. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp 
With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-author of The Experience Economy, Competing for Customer Time, Attention, and Money, and co-founder of Strategic Horizons, LLP, Joe Pine. My man, Joe, are you feeling unstoppable today? (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a little under the weather, so not the best, (laughs) but unstoppable, absolutely. I will try to take it easy on you, and thank thank you you. so much for, uh, you know, continuing to holding true to our, our scheduled time today. I know I've been really looking forward to today's conversation, and I appreciate you powering through to, to, to be available for me and my listeners. So uh, I, I'm i talking to you today because Ed Doherty called you out, uh, somebody who I have a lot of respect for. He said, this is a book you got to read. I, I dove into it. There's been this overarching narrative right now in our industry that our, our business model is broken. The, the restaurants of today are stuck in the 1905 business model. We're still in the service economy. We, we, we haven't quite recognized our value, in my opinion. So today, my hope is that by talking to you, we can help our listeners better understand their worth and how to build their their business around their worth is my hope through talking with you today. But before we dive into a little bit of, about who you are in the experience economy, let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? <laughs> Go beyond goods and services to staging experiences and guiding transformations for each one of your individual customers. Yes. And and I know this is the third rendition of your book. Did did you get into transformation in the first rendition? Yeah, okay, yeah. so you're it's actually been ahead. there from the very very wow. beginning when I discovered the experience economy. Because well, because I'm always asking what's next, and that's what came out as what's next. Yeah, and you use a lot of these triggering terms like staging and acting. And I think yep. when people first hear those things, they feel like that's fake. That doesn't feel natural. <laughs> and I'm sure we're going to get into that. <clears throat> uh, but before we kind of dive into the big picture of how you landed where you are today with your theory of the experience economy and the transformation economy. Um, get us an, an idea of who you are. Like, how did you come to find yourself doing this work? I just want to understand who you are. real quick. Well, so, um, so I like to say I'm a, a geek from way back, but my wife will tell you I was really a nerd. Um, you know, I started programming computers in seventh grade, you know, yeah. uh, way back when. Decided to go to the computer industry, have an applied math degree, worked for IBM for 13 years. Uh, started in very technical jobs and then moved up into management and strategy. And the <clears throat> the uh, sort of defining moment for me or, was when I read Stan Davis's book, Future Perfect. It came out in 1987, and uh, Stan died last year, unfortunately. But uh, when I read his book it was, as a strategic planner at IBM, it was like the heavens opened up and the angels sang because it explained everything that I was seeing going on. And so one of those chapters in there was called mass customizing, right? So he coined this term mass customizing. He told me he actually one day was, for, for uh, thinking purposes, he just uh, uh, cut up a bunch of different words and was just pairing them together. And he got to where he paired mass and customization together and went, whoa, right? That's, that's something. What, what would that be? And he, he realized that if you, as the technology was bringing down the cost of customization so that eventually you would be able to individually customize, which is something we only think of with craft production, but you could individually customize, but do it on a mass basis, do it with low cost, efficient operations with high volume. And so I worked on getting that into our plans and strategies at IBM. And as a reward for a project I did, more or less, they, they sent me to MIT for a year to get my master's degree. And I discovered that I had to write a thesis. And I immediately said, I'm going to write a thesis I can turn into a book. 
And then the next thing I said is, I'm going to do it on mass customization. Right? It, was a, it was a chapter in his, uh, his book, so I wanted to do a full book treatment on it. Can you repeat the name of his book real quick? Future Perfect. Future Perfect. Future Perfect. There's several books with that name out there, but uh, uh, Stan Davis, Stanley M. Davis, I think is the, is the uh, formal name on it. Um, just, just, I mean, it, it, I really recommend you still read it today. You know, oh, that's how that's it. how good it I is. Got a long car ride home. I'm right. putting this thing in Audible. Um. Oh, I, <laughs> I was going to say you got to read it on the way home. Okay. <laughs> and and he has just as an aside, he has another chapter in his book that inspired another book of mine. So that's how good it is. Um, <clears throat> so um, so I you know so I basically did all my work all I could to to focus on this thing called mass customization. Eventually, deciding long after the book was published that that the the way to think about it is efficiently serving customers uniquely, right? Giving everybody exactly what they want, but doing it at a price they're willing to pay. And so, um, when taking time to write, write the thesis, I outlined a full book, and then figured I could get four chapters done when I was at MIT, and then the rest done when I got back at IBM, right? And that's what happened. And I got. Uh, uh, Harvard Business School Press at the time uh, 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 got a contract from them to publish the book. You know, the one thing they said was, uh, "We have, you know, we think it's going it to be a great book. It's what we're looking for, but we have no idea how you're going to get done while working full time at IBM." To which I responded, "I don't either, but I'll figure it out." <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want it bad enough, you can figure exactly, out. exactly. And it, and it turned out within six months, I found a group within IBM, basically called Management Research, under the IBM Consulting Group that uh, said they'd give me 40% of my time to finish the book so oh, they wow. could then teach and consult on it. Nice. So, and so I joined the IBM Advanced Business Institute and started doing client executive education as well as consultant e- uh, education, you know, full-day workshops and that yeah. sort of thing. And one of those with a bunch – so actually, uh, for that, I actually left IBM then uh, about uh, eight months after the, uh, the book came out simply because they gave my wife and I – she worked for IBM as well – both six months salary to leave and they wanted me to become a full-time consultant which i didn't really like the idea of uh, you know being gone for weeks at a time with young kids and everything that makes sense so i said well let's see if we can make it work out and um and that was uh, 30 years ago this past summer i was gonna say because the first rendition of the book came out in like the late 90s right correct? 98 right. was it 99 99 was the book, right okay and uh and and, and mass customization came out in late 92 um, but 30 years later, my wife is still not sure it's going to work out, you know, but so far so good. <laughs> and, uh, so what I, so IBM then became my biggest client after I left. And in one of these workshops I did on mass customization, it was to the IBM consulting group. And one of the guys in the back of the room said, um, you know, asked a question that I hadn't heard before. Cause I often said that uh, mass customizing a good automatically turns it into a service, right? If you, if you, um, um, you know, goods, basic economic distinctions are goods are standardized, services are customized, done just for a particular person. Goods are inventoried after production, but services are delivered on demand when the customer says this is what they want. And part and parcel of mass customization is the intangible service of helping customers figure out what it is that they want. Right. So if you do all that, you know, the easiest example you, in restaurants, you know, you go to a Five Guys and you got a Coca Cola freestyle machine, right? And you, um, uh, see in there that you take your cup, right? They give you a, an empty cup. You take it up to the machine. You decide what um, 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 uh, particular drink you want. In my case, it's always Coke with lime. And then, uh, and then, on, and only then does it put those components together into your cup. 
So it's it's delivered on demand, right? It's in it's not finished goods inventory they have. They're sitting in Coke bottles or 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 whatnot. But it's uh, it's work in process inventory, waiting for you to decide what it is you want. In fact, what I generally do is I go up to about eighty percent full, and I switch over to Coke Zero with lime. So I don't quit kick quite as much sugar. So there's really an infinite number of possibilities because you could take your cup and you keep switching drinks all you want. Have those uh, old suicide drinks I remember as a kid. My mind's going to the kiosks of the world today, where now if you walk up to a kiosk, it recognizes who you are and your previous orders, so you can literally just like streamline that process and right. knows you. Like, would that be the same example? Yes, or similar? yes, okay. yes. Because they're doing it on demand. They're doing it based. Based on who you are and what you individually want. So, right. in terms of, of experience, this is just like convenience, or like wh- <clears throat> where? Wh- well, that doesn't get you better experience. It just gets you good service. Okay, right. And so, what this one consultant in the back of the room, after I had said that, uh, asked the question. Well, you talked about service companies that mass customize. What does it turn a service into? And I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And went, whoa, that sounds good. <laughs> you know, yeah. hold on a second. I got to write that down. Yeah. And I did. I wrote that down and I spent time f- figuring it out and thinking about it and realized that it was true that if you design a service that is so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go, wow, and turn it into a memorable event, mm-hmm. turn it into an experience. Uh, and so, um, uh, so that means that experiences would be a distinct economic offering. Right, that's the key point of the book. That still people who read it don't always get that. It's a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods, and therefore you'd have an economy based off of experiences, the experience economy. Yeah, can you paint the big picture? I think the book does a really great job. Again, I'm going to hold this up for the camera. I don't think I've done that yet. We have it. It's the experience economy competing for customers' time, attention, and money. There's a cover if you haven't picked it up yet. You do a really great job in the beginning of the book kind of just painting how we got here as a the, the evolution of economy, going from commodity all the way to experience. Can you? I don't expect my listeners to be experts on how we transformed over time. Can you just run through that real quick to kind of get the picture? Sure, pictures? sure, sure. So, so uh, it all began with the agrarian economy, right, that lasted for millennia, where you extract out commodities from the ground, you know, animal, mineral, vegetable, and then sell them on the open marketplace, right? So if you're a restaurant chef and you go down to the wharf and you pick out the exact fish that you're going to cook that day, right, you're, you're participating still with the, the, the agrarian part of the economy. You're purchasing uh, – uh, sorry, with um, – Train of thought here. So you're purchasing <laughs> at that point. You're purchasing commodities. Like right. you're, you're going, Correct. you're purchasing a commodity, and you're making it a good. Right, right. You then that well, and then you you actually make it into a good of a of a cooked fish. Let's say then. Uh, so that's the industrial economy. Uh, all of the cooking utensils, the 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 tables and chairs people sit on, the decor, uh, the building, everything. Those are physical goods, physical, tangible things that we touch and feel. Right. That was the basis of the industrial economy. Then we get into the service economy. And the service economy is where you use, um, um, where you do, you deliver a set of intangible activities on behalf of each individual person. So you take that fish, they order it. Only then do you cook it, right? Again, do it on demand for them individually, uh, and and deliver it uh, to their table. So restaurants are always classified as services, although there's a always a gray area between these economic offerings. 
And one of them is like, if you think about McDonald's, right? So McDonald's is a restaurant, but if they put the hamburgers in inventory and draw it off of that inventory, it's more like a good. One of the reasons why if I go to McDonald's, uh, I always order bacon on it because then they always produce it from scratch. I mean, not truly from scratch. It's still a ha- the patty's been right. made before, <laughs> but they're doing it. And it's going to be warmer, et cetera, and, and make it done more for me. So, so we shifted into an industrial economy in the early 1900s is when it really finally overtook um, uh, commodities as the, as the, the predominant economic offering in the country. You know, it's particularly when Henry Ford put it all, the, the assembly line and mass production all together. Then uh, in the, um, uh, starting in the 1950s is when the service economy overtook manufacturing and became the predominant economic offering. So what was happening in the 1950s to go from, uh, you know, from goods to, uh, so was it goods? I always get it. From goods to services. Goods to yeah. services. Thank yeah. you very much. Like what was going on? What was the trigger that? And that people, people often say products. That may be the word you're wrestling with, but right. I always try often, pro, and I've done it myself, or product would mean any type of economic offering. So I, I try and say goods is the, the physical thing. But um, so, so partly it's, um, it's um, because we got so good at manufacturing, it took fewer and fewer people to be able to produce them. Because you look not just at GDP, but you look at employment. You know, in the early 1900s, um, uh, 40% of people still worked on farms, uh, whereas today that's less than 2% of the people that's in the crazy. country in a, in a, where we have, what, four or five times as many people in the country. And uh, in the same way, manufacturing sort of topped out in the 1920s at 40% and then slowly get down where today it's less than 8% of the people working manufacturing jobs. And so it's services that really took over from that. Um, and a lot of it, like in the 50s, is where you saw a lot of innovation in financial services uh, in credit cards and things like that. Uh, and uh, logistics is another big part. And then you saw it's when people started going out to eat more and more mm-hmm. as well. Uh, retail um, uh, blossomed, and that's a, that's a service, the merchandising that you do there. Even though you're selling physical goods, you didn't make them. You're, you're retailing them. So you had this this abundance of goods circling the market, and now we're asking ourselves, how do we add value? Like we can't recreate anything. We kind of hit the limit of the amount of goods we have. Maybe we can add value by offering our services to use these goods. So you right. have the good, right. but you still have to give your time to that good to mow. Your, you have a you you bought right. the lawnmower, but you still need forty five minutes to mow the lawn. Let me do that for exactly, you. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the 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 question I always like to ask people. Yeah, and, and it used to be when the book first came out in the, in the uh, early two, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, occasionally I'd still have to argue with somebody that this was going on, that, that, they, um, um, uh, that, that they, would, they would say, no, experiences aren't really a, a real thing. They're not really a, an economic offering and so forth. And I'd just talk about how uh, economies were changing. And so, for example, one of the questions I'd ask was how many people here s- still change their own oil in their car, in their car, right? In the, in the early 2000s, I'd get maybe one or two hands raised up. And today you get almost zero hands right. raised up. Why? It saves us time, right? As well as the cleanup, as well, you know, the monkeying around with it. They, it, it uh, we value it more highly, the time that it would take to do that, and more highly than the dollars in our pocket to pay somebody else to do it. And the other question I, lo- I love to ask is how many people here have killed chickens for dinner? And, and, and one, it'd almost always be a few more than change, still change their own oil in the car. <laughs> wow. And two, 
the, the, the people who had never killed a chicken for dinner, cannot imagine killing a chicken for dinner, would look like the people who had killed chickens for dinner were from Mars. <laughs> right? And I said, that's, I said, if we were still, if you believe that we wouldn't advance in economies, we'd still all be killing chickens for dinner. Right? Right. We don't do that. We let other people do that. And we spend our time in, in ways that we value more highly. So we, we shift from you know doing it ourselves to outsourcing. And I think you alluded in the book, too, that the Japanese culture was a little bit ahead of us when it came to that. Like, because they, they had an abundance of labor, right? Right. but we had an abundance of goods. So there was kind of a shift in culture. I don't I, I digress. But, <laughs> but when did we go from when did like the, the uh, experience economy really start to replace the service economy? Well, the, so, so one thing to understand is that experiences have always been around, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a new economic offering, just newly identified. And if you look at all the government statistics, they recognize experiences, but they lump them into services. I mean, they say admission, you know, all admission fee things, sporting events, concerts, plays, movies, and that. They, they have categories for them, but they say, hey, these are just services. And it's funny how now you, you read all these articles about how services you know, in the last year – uh, are are so much going uh, going faster than experiences as we came out of the ap- pandemic pandemic we we shifted to goods because we couldn't have experiences and now they talk about uh, how we're now shifting our expanding to a services but then they always say services like going out to dinner like going to concerts like going to you know, Taylor Swift has an, has an, an impact on GDP this year <laughs> because of of her uh, her concert that's wild so so you have that um, uh, shift. Um, that is going on, and it's always been there. But the, you know, there's one there's one point where you can see a demarcation point, and see if you can guess what happened on this date, in July 13th, 1955. Could be July 17th. I gotta think a little bit. <laughs> 1955. 55. Um, I know post World War. I don't know what happened. Was that um, JFK? No, it no. was Disneyland. Opened okay. in California, oh. <laughs> right? And here was something that was so distinct, it got so much remarking on, right? So it was a remarkable event that became an icon for experiences. So that was sort of the point where you could see that experiences were going on. You could recognize, hey, this is different. Um, but it really, it really took until you know probably after the two thousand eight two thousand nine economic crisis for experiences to really come to the fore and become the predominant economic offering over services. Um, and now because of the pandemic, it's, it's gone up even further that, you know, the, the, the one thing we couldn't do during the pandemic was have experiences. We couldn't, any place people wanted to gather together was a place nobody wanted to be. Yeah. And so you had this tremendous pent up demand. And then as soon as some experience opened up, um, it would be filled to capacity. You know, Disneyland, 25%. Okay, 25% were there, and they had to turn people away, whatever it was, with the exception of movies, because they stopped having, you know, putting good movies out there. Mm-hmm. So they're the only ones that lag uh, behind. So what was going on in 2008? Was it just a matter of the, the fact that the, 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 the market was so saturated with services that it wasn't enough just to be a service? You had yeah, to offer well, something special? Yeah, well, we had this, we had this huge recession which also got people thinking about where do they where do they want to spend their money, right? Is that we're we're recognizing that we got to be careful in how we spend our money because we may be out of a job or 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 could see that maybe that might happen and uh, and the interest rates have gone way up and so forth and it really got people thinking about um, the fact that that experiences have more value to them than things that that experiences are more meaningful to them than things. 
there was this uh, comic in in the New Yorker magazine. You know, it's famous for its little little uh, cartoon strips there, uh, single panel ones. And uh, and there was one that had these people at a bar, and they were saying to each other, you know, we were into things, and now we're into experiences. So was it just a shift in culture where we're just starting to value different things? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and it's good, good, Eric, that you use the word shift, right? Because everything is always a shift. People always say, oh, that's dead. And this is, no, 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 nothing ever dies, right? <laughs> it's always going to stick around. Uh, almost. There's still buggy whips that are sold <laughs> for goodness sakes. And, uh, uh, but there is this shift that happens where, and people recognize in this case that it is a shift of desiring more experiences than, than services and than goods. I mean, is it, is it tied with just, I mean, I feel like there's, m- a increased level of just awareness today or just, I don't know, mindfulness of like, will things make you happy? Like there's that instant like hit of dopamine you get right. when you buy a new car or like you right. feel look good, but that feeling doesn't last long. Right. Whereas an experience, if it's truly an amazing experience, like you can reflect back at that experience and it can still bring amazing feelings. Yes, like, it's the memories. Okay. Right. It's the, it's the memories that you keep that bring that feeling back again and again and again. And particularly if you have memorability for that, every time you see a, a you know, a ticket to that ticket to Disney world or a photo pass book that you purchased or, um, a concert ticket, whatever it might be, you have the, or, you know, Mickey mouse hat and watch, whatever, you you remember the experience, it recalls it, it brings it to mind, it helps cement those memories. And so that you get that, you know, that dopamine hit uh, every time you remember, not just when you uh, experience live. Well, you, you pointed out it was 2007, 2008 when the shift from service to experience started, uh, or really started to take over. Um, I'm curious what the correlation between that and social media is with now people wanting to be seen for the experiences they have that like, look at what I'm doing. Look, look how cool I am. Like that psychographic of like, look how interesting my life is. Is, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very insightful that, that we, as it became a thing to post our experiences or to post us inside of experiences, um, that that helped accelerate that shift because we wanted to have more experiences. You know, there are some places that exist in my mind solely because of uh, social media, like the Museum of Ice Cream and other Instagrammable places, as they right. call it, right? There's not enough of an experience going on, but you've got great backdrops for pictures. And so that's enough to get people to, you know, to pay $30, $35 uh, for an hour, hour and a half and, um, um, and be able to uh, enjoy it and particularly in posting it on on social media. So in, in any other experience, that's a big thing. You know, I can still remember I used to tell clients, you know, the last thing you want is somebody pulling out their phone in your experience because it means they're dropping out of the experience. But now recognize, no, they're pulling out their phone so they can take a picture of it, which helps with their, their memories and so forth. I still do think it actually gets in the way of the actual experiencing, that you sacrifice the actual agree. experiencing for, for maybe greater memories of the experience. And so I don't tend to do that, but, uh, but it's something that people love to do. Well, I think part of the experience is the, is the knowing of other – like it's just the fact that other people know that you're here doing it. It's more about how you – I feel like the psychographics of like what do people think of me when they know that I'm experiencing experiencing this experience yeah you know which is an experience in itself right which i think is an issue <laughs> but i digress so uh, one thing i am i want to start diving into is this idea of like like 
how does this manifest? How does the experience economy manifest? And I think when people think of the experience economy, they think of things like the Rainforest Cafe. And I know you you must know that gentleman. Yep. He's based here in Minneapolis. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, um, his name Steve is Steve Shusler. Yes, thank you yes, very much. Yes. Yeah. Uh, We've met a number of times. I have his book. I, I'm trying to connect with him when I'm down in Florida because I know he has a lot of projects down yeah. there. I'd love to get him on the show. Um, but you, I can I can make an introduction. I've met him. him. Yeah, oh, like okay. we we're in touch. It's just a matter yeah. of lining up while we're both right. in Florida. So. Like you, you, your mind goes to the experience economy, like uh, Brainforest Cafe is like I think what a lot of people think of, and I would think that a lot of people today would argue that the, the day of the theme restaurant is almost come and gone. But what are your thoughts on that? I, I think I think the the theme restaurant as as most often um, put together is definitely not a lasting concept. And it's because it's what I call theme restaurant disease, that most theme restaurants think if you have this great environment that you have a great experience and uh, and therefore you can get get away with lousy food and poor service, right? Which is not the case. You've got to bring it all together. Experiences are built on top of services, so you need great service. Services are built on top of goods, so you need good food, right? You need to put it all together. And, and I would also re- submit that, as we say in Chapter 3 of the book, all experiences are themed. Right, you may not be themed intentionally, but they're all themed. They all have a underlying concept, an organizing principle, a dominant uh, uh, idea that you get out of it. Uh, even a a white tablecloth, uh, you know, restaurant is a theme unto itself. Um, so, um, so you 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 always have that theme, and it's better if you do it intentionally, like theme restaurants do. But theme restaurants also tend to be in your face and over the top. Right, so the, right. the, the day I, of the the theme leading the experience right, is right, over. Right, it can't carry the ship anymore. It can't carry everything. Right, again, you know, not completely over, but is diminishing. Right, and so and there's so there's room for um, other experiences that have more subtle themes uh, and are designed well, and in particular, don't sacrifice the the food and the service. Yeah, I think there is four uh, realms of experience, yes. right? With and, that, and those are. Uh, entertainment, educational, escapist, and aesthetic. So when we're thinking of these different experiences, we want to think within those realms. Is that safe to say? Yeah, you want what what you want to use the realms for is is to help you design any experience because the most robust experiences, the best experiences are those that hit the sweet spot in the middle that have aspects of all four realms. So yeah, there may be times where you want to purely design for one realm. And, and cafes, for example, have their, their center of gravity, if you will, in the aesthetic experience. And it's aesthetic with an E, not an AE. Uh, AE is a philosophical study of beauty. Aesthetic with an E is about the, the built environment that you create that people want to come in, hang out, and just be. So that's with cafes, that can be very strong. You don't necessarily want to you know, blare music at them uh, for entertainment value or have TVs going on like in a sports bar. Or um, you, you may want to teach them some aspects of, of coffee and how it's grown and made and that sort of thing. Um, and, and maybe you want to transport them to a different reality that slows them down with, with escapists. But your center of gravity is going to remain in that aesthetic level of experience. But in general, if there are elements where we, where we can bring in all four realms of experience, we're going to have a better experience and particularly a more robust experience. Got it. Um, so... I think the other thing that I want to bring to the conversation, but actually before we dive into that, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's total oil management automates your entire cooking oil process. With total oil management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, used cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to those messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal, storage, collection, and recycling conveniently, safely, and cleanly with no upfront cost. RTI services are not limited to oil. They also provide insurance premiums and automated hood cleaning solutions plus hood filtration systems, making your hood cleaning process easy, automatic, and worry-free. In addition to all this, Restaurant Technologies, Inc. can help you reduce your carbon footprint, which we all know is becoming increasingly more important to the consumer. Restaurant Technologies, Inc. is always on, so you don't have to be. To learn more, head to rti-inc.com and let them know Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast sent you their way. This episode made possible by Owner.com. Owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30% commission fees. Look. With Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit Owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. We're back. Um, so one of the things I really want to dive into, make sure we unpackage today is helping my listeners understand where their experiences are, where we where we are providing experiences that we're not even aware of how to identify those experiences, those points of experience, but then also how do we structure how do we pay or charge for this? You know, so does that trigger you into a, a yeah? I mean, series the, of thoughts? to figure out where you're at is is again, um, um, the, the, one of the key distinctions between services and experiences is is time well saved. Right? I talked about how you know, change your own oil in the car it saves you time. That's what you're looking for with services. Do something so that I don't have to do it. Uh, and so services are time well saved. What experiences are is time well spent. Mm. That people actually value the time that they spend in your place. Uh, and um, you can, in a restaurant, you can provide either one, right? So if you have mobile ordering and pickup, right, you're providing time well saved. But if people come in and sit down and have a great meal uh, and enjoy the time that they are, that they're spending eating and socializing and so forth, then, uh, then you provide a time well, well spent. And, uh, and then there are aspects of, of each um, in, in any one uh, experience generally. So like, you know, like we mentioned uh, going to Disneyland before, uh, you go to Disneyland, it's very much time well spent, 
but you don't want to spend a lot of time getting into Disneyland, right? The, you know, there used to be long lines right. at the gate to get in, and that's time wasted, right? Right, and and so the worst thing to do is waste people's time. And then with the magic band, they figured out how to be able to um, uh, get you in uh, basically immediately. There's no waiting time whatsoever to, to get into Disney. That's a recent but, thing, right? Yeah, the, last uh, 10, 10 years or so. Well, I think they just launched an app too. Like there's now yep. you don't wait in lines at all. It's all queued. Right. Like you get like your notification that the ride's ready for right, you. Right, right. Virtual queues. And that's yeah. where things should go. Yeah. So, so in restaurants too, right? If you have to wait for your table, that's often uh, wasted time. Right. Right. But there are some places where that can be, you use the term, I think, experience moment. So I don't know if you're familiar with Heidi Low restaurants uh, no. out of China. There's a few in the U.S., but they often have long lines. In fact, when I was last in China, we talked about going to one. I said, well, let's go to the Heidi Low. And they said, well, it's like it's a 45 minute wait, whereas this place is open. <laughs> we said, OK, we'll go to the open place. But uh, if it had been a half hour wait, I said, let's let's do it. But anyway. Because what they do is that the 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 wait staff will come out and basically entertain you while you are waiting. They'll give you games to play. They'll do little contests. They'll tell jokes. They'll just uh, talk with you and so forth, so that you are uh, you know until until a table become uh, ready. Right. So they turn that waiting time, that wasted time, into time well spent. I mean, two things come to mind when we talk about that. Like, there's the waiting apps that are out there right. where I think I don't. If you are a wait, if you're if you're a restaurant that doesn't do reservations and you 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 run based off like a, a line, right? If you're not leveraging an app to let people wait at virtually, home yes, virtually, yes, yes. like I don't know why you wouldn't add that value because to your point, it's time well saved yep. and leading into time well spent. You're instantly adding value to your consumer. Right. Like why wouldn't you offer that? Exactly. There's another feature out there or another app business called line leap, where now you're giving people the option to bypass the line at an additional value. Like, mm -hmm. like you're basically well, saying, by paying more money. Exactly. Like, right. Why wouldn't you offer that option? Right. That goes straight to the house. You like, right. You know, like what, what goes through your mind as I share these types of things? Well, yeah, the only thing at the, on the last thing is you've got to worry about people getting ticked off because they're being, you know, uh, superseded in line. Um, they have the same option. Right. They have, right. They have, but nonetheless, it's like, I mean, it's like the old pay the mater D 20 bucks and you, he'll, he'll seat you. Right. Uh, so it sort of brings that back. But there can be people who will view that um, as, um, Unfair, let's mm, say elitists or right, right, elitists and so forth. I but think, I think if done well, it's a, it's obviously a valuable thing to do. Economically, it's exactly the right thing to do because right. what you always want to do is you want to get people to uh, pay the most amount of money they're willing to pay for an experience. Yeah. And so you get to go ahead, uh, and because you're willing to pay more for it, and that's a better use of of economic resources overall. It makes right. the country better at, at at a macro level. I see it working better in like, like ticketed events where there's a bunch of people coming for a show. Right. And there's a long line on a Friday yeah. night and like, but like, why not give your, 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 Hey, like your, here's another la layer of service that we're willing to provide. If you have the money to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Why shouldn't you open yourself up to that opportunity? Um, have you heard of the company talk? T O C K. Yes. yes. What goes through your mind there? Well, so basically what Talk is doing is, is enabling restaurants to charge admission for the experience. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's what you need to do. So, so to digress a little bit, um, it's really key to understanding that, that 
when you're looking at distinct economic offerings that everyone has a different way of charging for. And so one of the ways you can tell what makes them uh, uh, which offering because, and as a company, you are what you charge for. So if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities uh, your people perform, you're in the services business. But economically, you're in the experience business if and only if you charge for time, right? The time your customers spend with you because that's what they value is the time, right? You wouldn't imagine going to a theme park or a sporting event or a concert or a play or a movie without paying an admission fee mm-hmm. because you know it's an experience. And and one of the the most controversial things we probably said in the original edition of the experience economy was that in the future, retailers and restaurants and manufacturers and others would charge admission for experiences. And, and people thought we were crazy, but now you see that. And one of the first was Next in Chicago, uh, Grant Anschutz's restaurant, uh, simply because of demand. The demand was so high. And if they had a cancellation, right, and you lost that that money, right, it's, 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 un, it's um, um, what's the word? It's lost to, revenue. It's, yeah, it's, it's lost revenue immediately. You can't replenish it again. Uh, and and so they put in a system which eventually became talk uh, with his business partner uh, funding it and, and doing it that uh, that you would have to get online and reserve a particular time and pay in advance right and now you've got the use of that money one of the big things it does in adva- for the days or months before you get that reservation that you didn't in a time of low interest rates that doesn't matter that much in a time of high interest rates that matters a lot to the bottom line. Um, and also people aren't going to cancel or if they do cancel, you've got a, like a 48 hour notice. So you're going to pay anyway. If they do cancel, great. Now you can replace Ex- that reservation with somebody else. Right. <laughs> exactly. So you, so they're never yeah. out of inventory basically right. because of that. Um, and so, and it completely changes the dynamics, right? You're paying an admission fee. It sends a signal that this is a place worth experiencing. Well, I think the other big variable there is that there that uh, a Friday night experience at seven p.m. or or eight right. p.m. isn't the same value on a Tuesday night, where that that seat is in high demand, right? So it's it's more valuable. Charge for it, and I think that's another thing that talk brought to the table is this sliding scale of right. like, hey. This is dynamic. Right. Our our the value of our seat is dynamic throughout the week, and we our prices should reflect that that that, that dynamic shift that's happening. The the increase in demand during peak time versus not peak time. Right. I mean, dynamic pricing again is obviously the the way to go. It maximizes the revenue uh, uh, for the effort, and there are things that can happen. You can also, if you notice that for whatever reason, um, this particular evening is 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 less than it normally is. Maybe it's because the NBA had its its uh, you know in cup season in season uh, cup championship, and your your team's playing, uh, whatever it might be, and um, and so therefore you can actually you can actually lower the price as you get closer to it as you see the demand isn't there. I mean the airlines have done that for years. They call it yield management. Um, and it's a matter of just finding the right price that people are willing to pay for, which maximizes revenue, which means you get to uh, provide the experience that you want, which means people have better experiences. Right, right. I use Hotel Tonight. I don't know if you ever heard of that yeah. app, but basically like you. Right. It, it's, it's always for this evening, right? Yeah, this evening. Right. You can get great rates because it's better than being empty, you know. Um, but uh, I want to go back to this idea. You said you are what you charge. Um Help us understand where, like, I mean, you, you spelled that out really well, uh, but 
in terms of like on a more micro level, we are what we charge within our four walls. What are the things we can do to elevate an experience to, to be, to ask for more in return from the consumer? Well, the, the, um, the th- the thing is, first of all, to is to is to state what business you're in and recognize we are in the experience business. Mm-hmm. Yes, we provide goods and services, but we do that in a, to to create a great experience. I think restaurant owners are really good at recognizing. You hear it all the time. We're not in the business of feeding people. We right. are, we are creating experiences. Right. We're just not good at charging for it. Right. <laughs> right. And that's and that's where you have to get to that point yeah. to be able to do it. And there's there are. A number of restaurants today that have shown the way to be able to do it, and again, Talk is a great software that allows you to do it as as well. Uh, it helps if basically you're sold out. That's the best time to be able to do that is to is to and and put in the admission fee. Um, and there are other ways of doing admission fees as well. I just got an engagement um, next month in Porto, Portugal, and so one of the places I'm going to go to as I whenever I go to places to try and experience things, but there is a um, um, bookstore. I'm not a very good at pronouncing Portuguese, um, but it's like uh, Leo Livera, and uh, they charge admission to get into the bookstore. And the reason being is it's like the most beautiful bookstore in the world. This thing is amazing. They have a staircase in there that uh, supposedly inspired J.K. Rowling, who actually wrote the first Harry Potter in Porto uh, for the Hogwarts staircase. Uh, and the problem is, is people were coming into their place and and filling it up and not buying anything. So they just wanted to see it and take pictures in it. So they instituted a little um, uh, booth across the street uh, that uh, you have to buy a ticket first to get in. And when I first heard about it you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, it was $3, 3 euros to get in. And then uh, then somebody told me, oh, yeah, I was there. It was 5 euros. And somebody told me, oh, it was 8 euros. My daughter went to it. Oh, it's 10 euros. You know, it just keeps going up. <laughs> yeah. Now, what they also interestingly do is they give you the money back if you actually buy something. Oh, cool. Right? So they actually sell more. So in the end, you don't, f- you, you don't feel like it's a big barrier because, yeah, I'll probably buy something anyway, and, and, and people do. So it's one of the ways to be able to, uh, to do it. Others, you can also do it for times. You know, uh, Starbucks I use as an exemplar of the experience economy. So that they, last example real quick, yep. if that wasn't for time, that was for fill in the blank. Well, they're, they're they're charging for the time to get in. It's an admission fee, an entrance fee to the um, uh, to the uh, bookstore. Yeah. So it's all it's it's about how much time you you know you're three dollars five you know, up to ten dollars for the time you're spending in there. Got it. Right. But they're they're giving you the opportunity to buy things and take that admission fee off. Right. And and you were leading into the next example. Yes. Uh, Starbucks is I, I was using as an exemplar of the experience comic because they take a commodity coffee beans which are worth two or three cents per cup and turn it into an experience of a coffee drinking experience in a physical place for um i used to say two three four dollars and i said three four five dollars now it's five six four five six dollars sometimes seven or more i know it's ridiculous (laughs) about how much has gone up but uh, but they don't charge admission, right? So they do what most companies do with, with any of these economic shifts is they give away the next value in order to better sell what they have today. They give away the next value to better sell what right. they have today. So they give away the experience. They allow you to to be in the experience, uh, to to in the place, and uh, and they're still charging for the service of making you a, a cup of coffee, you know, a personal cup of coffee just for you. And um, when, what people are valuing is the time that they spend uh, in the place, mm-hmm. and they're commoditizing themselves with their with their doing their um, um, 
their car uh, drive-throughs with their mobile pickup and that and all done in the same place. They're commoditizing themselves. And so one of the ways they should do it in my mind is they should charge 25 cents less if it's mobile or drive-through. And, and it could be 50 cents. And you, again, that's something you can play with to figure out what the right number is. Uh, and then if you are in the restaurant. Because you'll make up for it on throughput. And you're not paying for the experience right. well, of being in the restaurant. Right, right. Because that's, that's the real reason because you're not paying for it. Got and it. your costs are lower, therefore. Right. But the real reason is to send the signal that this is an experience. Mm-hmm. And you pay for the experience that you're having. Yeah. And if it moves more people to mobile, that probably improves their profits. Right. And provides a better for experience for those people that stay. Got it. Uh, what are the so there's what are the, you, you list the different types of ways to uh, charge people, whether it's membership or a pre-sale. Like, can right. you get into those real quick? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a model I have totally internalized, but uh, it's a it's a matter of um, whether you are selling based off of you know each entry or you're selling more of a one-time fee. So like you have initiation fees. Like most clubs that you join have an initiation fee plus a monthly uh, membership fee. Uh, and so you can do most of, most, uh, you know, both of those. Uh, you can charge for recurring occurrences like a, an access fee to a streaming, you know, like you're streaming Netflix, right? You're, you want to stream Netflix. And so every month you're, pay, you're paying for that uh, versus doing it on just whenever I enter it, I have to pay again and again and again uh, for, for each time like you would like on uh, DirecTV or others where I'm just going to buy this one movie and here's an extra fee to buy that, that movie. Can you think of examples where it makes sense to use those different charging models? Well, there's it, it. It really depends on the particular business. If you if it's more if you're looking for more of a lasting relationship, then you want an upfront fee of some 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 sort, right? A membership fee, initiation fee, and so forth. You'd like to get that recurring revenue where they're where they're paying every month for for things, um, and um, and then others. It's like it's just like every time you want to oh. Think of uh, slot machines. We, you know, I call that a, a per event or a per play fee, right? You're, you're putting your money. Now it's not so much actual coins, but a card, right? But you're putting your money for every turn of the crank uh, that you have there. And then you get those dopamine hits every time you, you, you turn that crank. And so it makes sense to be able to do it that way uh, versus like, uh, you know, here it's, it's uh, 100 bucks for an hour of playing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What comes to my mind when I think of membership fees uh, is this idea of creating you have your your standard offering the traditional idea of going to a restaurant making a reservation or waiting in line but what about a you know a separate experience that you create that's elevated from the normal experience maybe in a, a back room yeah where, yeah, yeah. Where, where like once a month we yep. we you know there's a pie of the month where like <laughs> it's a special pie that only members can get and it's an extra i don't know 50 bucks a month where you can come and you can you can make the pizza with us we teach you how to make or whatever like what's going through your mind as i'm sure right those are all good ideas right what is to get into classes absolutely show people how to do it um so right so those are very insightful uh answers you know doing classes and things is a wonderful thing uh but also i love what you said about different times and places that you might be able to do things so one of the areas to target is when you have the least demand 
right? So that you have an opportunity, right? So, so Starbucks, for example, you know, later at night, they could turn it into a, a music cafe, right? And you got an admission fee to listen to a music act and you, and you come in. Uh, look for those areas where you have less demand. You know, like it's why there's so many uh, discounts on Tuesday night, right? Because people go to restaurants less on Tuesday night. So turn that into an admission fee night. You know, open mic night into um, uh, trivia. Uh, music acts, trivia, right? Great Game, thing. My, night or whatever. Yeah, yeah, my son-in-law right, yeah. is, is, uh, works for a professional software company. Um, but on Thursday nights, he does the trivia for this uh, winery not too far from here. Uh, and it brings in a lot of extra revenue for them. And so, so that's a great way of being able to, uh, uh, to do it. Yeah. Uh, the guest, a uh, guest down in, in Austin, Texas on uh, nickel city. His name is, is Tober, Travis Tober. I think is mm-hmm. his name. The, the, he's like, I'm not in the business of bars. I'm in the enter. I'm in like the yeah. events business. Right. Like every, right. we are constantly throwing events We're and that's what, and like, I think it's, you become an expert in just figuring out what people want to do and, and, and hosting amazing events that drive traffic to your business. Cause they, they, he realizes exactly. that it's all about the experience. Uh, in terms of like membership too, the other things that I've seen in my time uh, is getting out, just getting out of the standard and diversifying your your por- portfolio to not just have the four walls experience, but hey, for like again, like a flat monthly fee, we'll send you the ingredients so you can make this at home. Like meal kits yep. is something that's really big now, and there's tools and services out there today where you don't have to build all the logistics on the back end. You can partner with people that handle the logistics for you, and you just they come and they pick up everything for you. Like so, like I think it's weird. It's like um, I don't know if that would be. It's like the like the, the I think the service economy is still almost like transforming, and like there's, it's like I feel like the service and the, the experience kind of kind of go hand in hand because. Now yeah, you- absolutely. They're, they're, they, they do go hand in hand because, again, experiences are built on top of services. It's also, again, you've got that gray area so you can shift from services to, uh, to experiences without a lot of change. Yeah. Right. One is just basically just changing your mindset. Right. right. It says we're in the experience business and then uh, you'll be able to uh, uh, create that, that, that great experience just from that mindset change. Right. Uh, so just the, over this past week, being in Minneapolis, because I was listening to your book while I was driving across the country, um, there's amazing examples of restaurateurs using experience. I, I mentioned the classes. We have Peter Campbell, who is doing his pizza classes, where he, t- he he gives you the history of why he started the restaurant. He teaches you how to make his pizzas. He tells you why his pizzas are unique, the things that he does that separates his pizzas from other pizzas. Then after you've made your pizza, and while you're eating your pizza, you're sitting down and doing a Q&A with the chef about why. Like, And he's just taking time to get to know you. He's asking questions like, yep. where are you coming in? So it's like all these like little things. It's educational. You know, it's exper- experiential where you're, you're developing a relationship, a one-on-one type of relationship with the chef where he's just being present with you. Like, these are just things I think almost everybody can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's going through your mind is I'm sharing. You remind me of one thing. My father um, um, used to love to say, and, and it actually was true, he's, he would say, I can become a regular in a, in a restaurant in one visit. <laughs> it's like, they're like, name that too, right? And he could. It was amazing because he loved being a regular. He yeah. loved people knowing his name, that sort of thing. And so he would tell the wait staff his name. He would ask their name. He would use their name. 
Uh, he would find a reason to use his own name, like talking to us as he's going through there. He'd tell him about how he liked his drinks and, and his food and everything. And, and he really could. And he just made So he was working to create an experience for the restaurant yeah. by which they would remember him. Mm. Right? It's an amazing thing. Yeah. We have uh, an Experience Economy Expert Certification course we do uh, uh, generally once a year. And uh, one of the exercises we do is we go out to retail and try and make their day. Right. They should, they, retailers and the restaurants we go to, they should be making your day. They should be focused on the experience. But since they're generally not, you are going to do it for them. Right. Here's your goal is that, that whoever you interact with, you want them to go home that day and, and, and say to, to, to uh, their family that you won't believe what happened today. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. And now how do you, how do you make that happen? And that's basically what acting is all about. Yeah. And, um, in terms of acting, I think of Tommy uh, Begnaud and uh, Tim Niver. So in, in Tommy Begnaud, the the chef owner of uh, Mr. Paul's Supper Club. I don't know if you've had the, the no. pleasure. You must go, my friend. Well, yeah. Is only, that here? It's only a 30-minute drive okay. in Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, but they that restaurant, it's in a sense, it's a theme restaurant. It's, it's themed after New Orleans. And mm-hmm. they, they transport their, their guests. It's not over the top, like rainforest cafe theme, but you right. hear brass music playing in the back. Like it's a very, they, they're trying to bring you into right. New Orleans with the decor, right. the music, the food, the drink, but it's also very unique to him and his story where that's where his grandfather, like that's where his, his family's yep. from. You right. Know? So it's authentic so as it's, well. It's, to him. It, you're right. personalizing it, but they transport you and they, they try to, you walk into that place you feel like you're in new orleans right you know and they have fun they're putting on a show which brings me to the next thing that i would like to discuss with you um actually this is going to be a teaser because i don't know if we've 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 tied up the idea of like how do we know what to charge and then i want to get into this idea of being on stage all right so do we do we fully unpackage like how do you know your value you um well, it, you don't always know your value until you get up to the point where people start saying no, mm. <laughs> all right? And and sometimes you don't want to get to that point, right? But if nobody ever says no to your prices, then you're not charging enough. Okay. So don't be afraid. So I right. think the, the standard operating procedure right now for charging and developing your price is you you look at what per, the person down the street is charging and you charge right. a little less, you know, right. no, that's no, what charge a little more. What are you, are you kidding well, that, me? Well, I think what happened over the past 50 years is exactly that, which yeah. is why people expect to get a tremendous amount of value for their, their dining experience because we just competed against each other for the longest time where we just offered a little less than the next guy. And like, there's just a little less margin for us. But I think what I want to, help people understand is figure out what your cost of goods are, figure out your prime cost, your labor, everything that goes into making that product and that experience, and then add 10% to whatever you have to do to, to get your, you know, at least 10%. But I feel like, I don't think I'm outrageous by saying we should making, be making 15 to 20% on our margin or more or, or more. more. Right. right. I mean, if particularly if, if you're, I mean, the sort of the cost plus model is definitely a, you know, manufacturing service delivery sort of thing. When you get into experiences, it's really about the value that people um, uh, get out of your experience. And that can be far more than the cost, right? When you're talking experiences and generally you look at every experience and it's not based on the cost. It's based on what the market will bear, what, what people are willing to pay. You look at the Taylor Swift tour and how much people are willing to, um, uh, to pay for that. And so that's what you need to find. Is, and there's a dance between 
uh, the level of experience you provide and how much you can charge for it, right? Again, you don't want to get above the experience that you're providing, right? Because then you'll either have bad word of mouth or people stop going. Um, and, and so you're always then a little under that, ideally. But um, but it, it, again, it is, again, about time well spent. So, mm-hmm. so one of the ways to, to measure yourself is we talk in the book, we introduce a new concept in the, in the 2020 re-release of the book called the money value of time, right, or MVT. And MVT uh, is about measuring the expenditures per minute. And now you can do that across industries. You can do it with retailers versus restaurants versus theme parks versus sporting events, whatever you want. It's what's the dollar per minute that they're, that they're paying? If you, if you go to a movie, um, you're paying, let's say, an average of $12 for the movie for about, 12, about two hours, right? That works out to $0.10 cents per minute, right? That's a good experience. You can get $0.10 cents per minute. Uh, Starbucks, you go there, you buy a $5 cup of coffee and you spend a half hour or an hour there, you're, you're spending five to 10 cents per minute, right? So it's sort of that same order of magnitude. You go to a Disney world, you're spending around 30 cents per minute. You go to an escape room, partly because it's more condensed amount of time, more intense than, than a Disney world is. You're paying 40, 50, 60 cents per minute, right? And the, and the sky's the limit. I mean, literally, you look at people are paying thousands of dollars a minute to go into space. <laughs> so the sky's the limit. So, so figure out what is the average time that people are spending with you. Uh, and it, it might be good to know wh- who are the people that leave early and why, who are the people that are spending a lot more time and why, what, that, what your standard deviation is, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and divide that expenditure, you know, the total, uh, meal ticket for the amount of uh, time that they're spending you and then see where you are in that and say, well, can I create an experience, an experience that's as good as an escape room and your new Orleans restaurant, uh, uh, Mr. Paul. Was it? Yeah. Mr. Paul's supper club, Mr. Paul's supper club could very well be an example of that. Certainly nightclubs are, are getting that comedy clubs are, are getting that, which often have a meal. You know, we got the Chan Hassan dinner theater. Uh, which is also a restaurant with a, a play going on around you um, that's getting at that sort of level. And when you get to that level, when you know you're getting above at least 10 cents per minute, then then you should be able to um, uh, start thinking about how you charge for it. Mm. And that transition is, is was one of the most difficult things. How do you go from from not charging for the experience to charging for the experience? And so the way, again, the talk does it where – Basically, it, you you just have a, a, a prefixed meal. Right? Yeah. It's one price is, is is the easiest way to do that because then you see okay, now you're just paying in advance. Yeah, and you know in advance how many people are going to show up. You can buy exactly right. what you need. You're not wasting. Right, right. The econ- it, yeah. yeah, it improves the economics tremendously. So you'll make even more profit off of that than than you do today. Yeah, I think now is a great time to take our next break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about thinking about. So we you you broke down how to think about this, but I think the next evolution of the conversation is how do we start treating our restaurants like a stage and how do we start finding points that increase the value of the experience? This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and labor cost in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time on creating great guest experience 
experiences. Margin Edge combines purchases from your invoices and sales data from your POS, which allows you to get real-time costing, get a daily controllable P&L, and send information directly into your accounting system. Margin Edge integrates with 60-plus POS systems and dozens of accounting systems. Manage everything from one central location, inventory, recipes, plate costs, ordering, and bill pay. Margin Edge was created by restaurant people for restaurant people. And as a matter of fact, Margin Edge founders continue to operate restaurants to this day. Head to MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. All right, we're back. And uh, there are two more things I really want to tap on. Uh, we, we kind of ex- express the significance of recognizing yourself as an experience-based business model. I want to touch on the different points of experience we can add to our businesses, thinking of our business as shows and a theater um, and the touch points and how we can add value to the experience. But then I also want to wrap up on talking about this idea of the transformation economy, which is kind of like the evolution of the experience economy. But back to this idea. So you just mapped out the how to value what is a uh, price per minute or something? What expenditures we, per minute. Yep. Yeah, expenditures per minute. How can we improve the experiences for our guests? Like, what, what, Take me down this path of... Um, we're all in a show business. Right. Tap into that. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, we talked about customization as a key route up this progression of economic value as, a, as I talk about it, uh, to turn goods into services and services into experiences. We talked about uh, cohesive experiences with theming and robust experiences with Hit the Sweet Spot. The next key thing is understand about how do you stage dramatic experiences. So you mentioned that the, uh, the subtitle to the 2020 re-release of the book was competing for customer time, attention, and money. The original subtitle for the book when it first came out in 1999 was Work is Theater and Every Business is Stage. 
And so it is important to understand that when you stage experiences, work is theater. And I don't mean that as a metaphor. It's not work as theater. I literally mean that when you are in front of customers, the guests in your restaurant or whatever experience you have, you are on stage and your workers are on stage. And you need to engage them, engage the audience in your experience uh, through the acting that you do. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you did make a, a brief mention uh, early on, I remember, about uh, uh, some people thinking that acting is phony. Uh, right. And my wife is that way. <laughs> she thinks <laughs> well, all actors are phonies. I think that's the case for a lot of people because I, I think a big word, a, a, a trigger word is authenticity. Yeah. And are we being authentic if we're putting on a show? Yes. So it depends is the answer. Yeah. So the follow-up book to that original edition was was we wrote a book on authenticity. You know, authenticity, what consumers really want. It was amazing that uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Merriam-Webster announced authentic as its word of the year, right? One of the most searched words of, of the year, um, which gets back to, you know, what we've talked about in that book as well. And, and so the thing is that acting absolutely can be fake. It can be phony, but not necessarily. And one of the examples I love in the, in the greater food business, uh, not restaurants, but is Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle. Yes. Right? You've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, I mean, the, these so, – so if anybody hasn't been there, you don't know this, but, you know, the, the, they're famous for throwing the fish, right? right. It's like a normal fishmonger stall uh, in Pike Place Fish Market – Pike Place Market, excuse me, in Seattle. And when you order something, they they shout out the order like, seven, fly it away to Minnesota. And then they all, sh- all the workers shout it back, seven, fly it away to Minnesota. And then they throw that salmon up across, you know, 15, 20 feet where somebody catches it and wraps it up. And they often do put customers behind there to catch it as well, as you mentioned with the other experience. Um, and it's, just, it's a signature moment that they have, this, this, this wow moment that people know about, anticipate, go there, want to see, want to experience. And then, of course, we want to talk about it uh, afterwards. Um, and, uh, and, and the thing to understand is that these people go home smelling like fish. <laughs> they are not paid actors. They are not fake or phony. They're having a great time. They want you to have a great time. Uh, my friend uh, John Christensen uh, here in the Minneapolis area uh, created the Immortal Fish video to be able to where he went and filmed them and, sort of, and drew out the principles that they have. And, um, and it, you know, it's about play and, and, uh, you know, having fun while you're doing it. It's about make their day, focusing on, on them and what they're doing. Um, and the final principle they have is choose your attitude. And that's what acting fundamentally is. Mm. Acting is choosing what parts of yourself to reveal to those in front of yourself. And, uh, and, and so it's not fake or phony. Again, it can be if you're revealing things that you really are not, right? If, right. You're, if you're pretending, that's, that's fake. But if you're revealing different parts of yourself, I mean, we all know we act differently in front of our parents than we do our kids, in front of our friends versus strangers, uh, in front of colleagues versus bosses and so forth. It's not that we're necessarily fake or phony in any one of those, but just revealing different parts of ourselves. And that's, that's what acting is, is choosing being intentional about everything that you do. Yeah. And when I hear what's going through my mind as I listen to you talk is this idea of what's behind the restaurant. So what are you, I mean, there's a level of this authenticity, like you're talking, you're sharing the story of Pike's Place. It sounds like the the people there almost have a level of pride of the work that they do. And um, you went through the kind of the, the values and like this. I think that if you if you give people a worthy cause, if you give your employees a worthy cause, uh 
a, a mission to execute, to deliver happiness, whatever it is. And you, right. you can sell them. You can get them to drink the Kool-Aid. And then there is a level of showmanship that goes into promoting that worthy cause. But ultimately, I think it's just the, the, this choice that you get to change people's life. Like, like what is behind the thing that you do that motivates right. people to show up a certain way? I think so. what's going through my mind is culture. It's like tying a, a, a strong culture into and putting that in the, the background of whatever it is you do to give people purpose to show up a certain right. way. And, and, and you, you just then use the word I would use as well as it's about purpose. Mm. It's about purpose. So, so one of the other fundamental distinctions besides time between services and, and experiences is uh, services are about the what, right? The functional things that you do. Uh, experiences are about the how. It's how you do what you do. Right, so how do you uh, uh, transfer fish to a colleague so they can wrap it up? Right. Well, normally you walk it over. No, here we're going to throw it. Right. It's how you do what you do, uh, and uh, and then you also then need to think about the why. Right, and that's where purpose comes in. Meaningful purpose is is just a higher level of a, a, a at a framework I have that that relates acting and theming and purpose together. So it's all about intention. Right? It's all about attention. So your acting intention is is the you know, it's, it's like perform blank in order to blank. Right? What's that in order to perform uh, uh, transferring fish in order to entertain? Right? Then okay, we're going to throw throw the fish. Um, uh, for example, it's what your intention is. That's the how you do what you do. Um, then there's the theme of the experience. Right? The theme of the experience is your intention about the experience overall. Right? That theme. Um, brings everything together, makes it cohesive, allows you to decide what's in the experience and what's out of the experience. And then you have what what's called in, in strategy strategic intention, right? This is sort of the change you want to be in the world in the next uh, you know, three, five, 10, 10 years. And then above that, everything flows from the meaningful purpose, right? This is the highest level intention that you have. This is who you are at your core. This is your raison d'etre, the reason why you exist in business besides making a buck. And it's important to have that meaningful purpose that aligns everybody together and allows them to to, uh, not have to be told, you know, second by second, moment by moment, this is what to do. But no, we're doing things to fulfill our purpose. Yeah, you... I, I made a note going through the last night when I was I was just going through making some notes. Um, I asked, uh, "Does strategic intent equal conscious capitalism?" Um, it it can be if the strategic intent is conscious about capitalism. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, uh, but it's it's sort of it's sort of a good place where that conscious capitalism operates at. Yeah, yes, and I, I think this that. is kind of leading into like this idea of transformation and like the transformation yep. economy. Uh, but um, before we, we get into that, I do want to pull one example, um, this idea of being on stage. I think of Tim Niver. Uh, maybe you've heard of Tim Niver. He's a pretty well-known St. Paul's restaurateur. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have Mucci's, to, I'm gonna have to get you to make a list of all the restaurants I should be oh, experiencing absolutely. here in the Twin Cities. <laughs> yeah. But uh, his backstory is, he, you know, he, he's from Buffalo, moved out to Minneapolis, and then he ended up moving out to, he was in New York where he learned like this level of showmanship from like having to experience New York guests eating out at like fancy steak steakhouses. He learned that he had to match the level of energy of these guests. Cause in New York, everyone kind of has an ego. They're trying to, right. they're trying to impress the people that are coming in. Like I'm a big deal here. They know me. We're going to get a good seat. And he had to learn this dance with the guest to respect the line of like your experience is no greater than any other guest mm-hmm. that comes in here. So it was he he kind of learned how to be rude in a very hospitable okay. way <laughs> where it's like, I'm going to respect you, but I'm also going to draw this line. And then 
he also combined that with his experience in Las Vegas, where he helped open the uh, the Bellagio. You know, so he he bought brought all these experiences of kind of being raw and gritty, and like he he knows this idea of like the showmanship associated with Las Vegas. He brought that to Minneapolis and opened the Town Talk Diner. I don't know if you remember the name mm. of that restaurant, but the the people that worked for him and what they were doing there, they literally transported people out of the Midwest into like this raw gritty, mm. like showmanship. Um, with the, they almost confused the guests because they're like, they would, they would walk in. Everyone would just start cheering and clapping like, Hey, you made it. And like, people were like, what, what's going on here? But it was like, what, what goes through your mind as I'm sharing this, this type of stuff right here in terms of, showmanship right right well he does understand that uh, he's on stage and he needs to act in a particular way and he's doing it in a way that to to get guests to not get ticked off when they don't get exactly what they want right, right? which is a, which is an important factor to do it's often done in street theater right one right. of the forms of theater is street theater and you've got to be able to handle hecklers right? Right. those are the people that are that are you know want something different and and so forth and so it's a great skill to have to be able to learn how to how to uh, do that well and right. you know massaging their egos at the same time not giving them you know exactly what they might want. In that interview, he also like we talked about you know from the other people that I interviewed that worked with him, he would train Tim Niver would train his staff to make love to the guests. Mm-hmm. And when he explained what that means, it means that if you've made love to different people, you know that no two people are exactly the same. They like different stuff. Right. I think, and that's kind of how you have to treat each guest is like, you have to, and it's a little kind of, I don't know, maybe slightly inappropriate. This, the example <laughs> I'm using, but it's just this idea that you have to be present and conform to the individual needs of each individual guest. And this idea of like almost each. So there's the show, the, the, the bigger picture, the, the dining room floor, but each experience with each guest is like a different set right right in the the greater show right and it's a different dance right and that you have with them and i think we we need to be just aware of this level of showmanship that goes on and like to your point it can be genuine if the, there's a some purpose back behind it that like if our mission is to change the day of each person that comes in here to leave them a little bit happier and at peace or whatever that is. And you, there's purpose in doing that. What's going through your mind? Um, well, the, the last phrase you said is that there's purpose in doing that, right? That's what intention is. And it's all different levels of purpose. And so I encourage everybody to understand all of those levels to, 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 where where everything flows from the meaningful purpose of the organization of why you exist to what what change you want to be uh, to your uh, theme of this particular experience and you have multiple themes I know a lot of you know like uh, uh, Chip Conley uh, the founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality used to name his hotels and he had restaurants and and spas as well um, after different magazines knowing that if he captures the essence of the magazine as his theme and puts it into his hotel or restaurant then everybody loves that magazine is going to naturally gravitate there and love that particular place. So if you have multiple places, right, don't necessarily think about we're going to have chains. No, have, a, have as Kimpton Hotel says, have a collection of different hotels, uh, different restaurants. Uh, there's, a, there's a Philadelphia restaurateur that does that, Stephen somebody. A star. 
Star, yes, yep. Steven Star, right, right. The one I've been to, I remember, is Elvez, yeah. which I love. The Mexican Elvis, Elvez. So it's, it's a collection of experiences <laughs> and, right, for, for different right, target markets. Right, exactly. And and people will gravitate towards ones. Although, you know, everybody can enjoy all of them, um, but they may have more of an infinity, wouldn't be more of a regular right. at them. And it could happen at also at different, you could have different themes or sub-themes uh, for different days of the week, for different meal times, and so forth, and have little changes in there in what you're doing, or for special events where we have a you know we have a show on tonight or whatever it might be. Yeah, you you, you bring up one other um, line in the book um, that I just think is worth surfacing here in today's conversation: this idea of acting, right? And relative to show business, um, it's an act, and that even that word kind of sounds a little slimy, but like <laughs> it's not, it's but, not. but exactly. Um, <laughs> you get, you explain why it's not. So get into that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's actually purely description. So one of the things I love, I love quoting a uh, famed stage director in the UK, Peter Brook. He wrote, wrote this wonderful little tome called the empty space. And the opening line, he says, I can take any empty space and call it a bare stage. A man walks across this stage while someone else is watching him, and that's all that is needed for an act of theater to be engaged. In other words, the simplest definition of acting is one person watches another person work. And if people, if the guests of your restaurant are watching you work, you're on stage. Right? You just can't get around it. You're on stage. And yeah, it means you've got to put emotional labor into it. It means you have to think about what you're doing. Uh, it means you can't go on autopilot. It means it's a tougher job than working at a McDonald's. But did you really want to work at a McDonald's anyway? Right. So, um, and, and, and guess what? Your tips are going to be <laughs> commensurate to how well you act. Right. Uh, and particularly making that you know, personal emotional connection with, with each individual guest, if you can. Back to purpose. Like, and I think that the act is like, you think of the word act, uh, you think of words like action or take action. Right. And if there's a purpose uh, that you give your team a purpose, if there's an, if there's something back of that, you're, I feel like you're taking action on following whatever the purpose of your organization is. And when you look at it that way, cause like you, what goes through your mind as I share that? Um, in terms of act and acting and taking action. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a proactive thing to be able right. to do. It is acting is action. Uh, I think I've got a book called Drama Equals Action. In fact, yeah. Uh, and uh, but it's but it's determining what's the right action at this moment in time. Right. Again, and that's what that's street theater again is 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 figuring out what routine that I want to do right now that's going to um, put the most money in the hat. Right, i.e., give me the biggest tip. <laughs> right, but what is the action? Is it feeding people, or is it something greater? No, it's a, it's it's everything else. That's the what feeding people is the what. Right, it's the how. Right, right, how you do that what. That's what is the, the act. Well, then informing it by the why. Yeah. Right, so that it informs the intentions that you uh, you bring to it. But I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to have things like a vision, like a mission statement, like core values, because it gives people something to act on. Right. And That's it's not way of putting it. Yeah. And it's not just I'm I'm here to feed people. But and I think that kind of leads us into the last thing we want to talk about today is this idea of transforming economy or the tra- uh, the transformation economy. Right. So. When did you come to this realization? So it was there from the very beginning, right? When I was figuring out the experience economy after that guy had asked me what customization turns a service into, and I realized that there's this heuristic in this progression of economic value from commodities, goods, services to experiences, and then on to transformations, as I'll talk about shortly. And that is that customization is the antidote to commoditization, right? So what happens over time is economic offerings become commoditized, meaning treated like a commodity. 
where people don't care who makes them. They're about the, the, the features or the benefits are all pretty much the same anyway. It's where they come to care about uh, three things and three things only, and that's price, price, and price. Right? That's when things yeah. have been commoditized. And so as goods became commoditized is when more manufacturers shifted up into services and began customizing the goods. The services became commoditized is with more service companies shifted up into experiences, again, generally giving away the next level of value to better sell what they have today. So I recognized from the very beginning, well, okay, can experiences be commoditized as well? Well, well, yeah. In fact, experiences may be the easiest economic offering to commoditize because the second time you have an experience doesn't tend to be as good as the first. The third time, not as good as that. And you get, and when customers say, been there, done that, right? That's the hallmark of the commoditized experience. So is that just expecting something? Is, is well, they, that- yeah, they, you, you don't offer anything different than they expect, right? It's just if it's the same thing every time, if there's no surprise, um, if there's no advancement, no innovation, um, no customization, then then it's going to be a commodity over time. So customization is the antidote to that commodization. You can't help but be differentiated, meaning not a commodity, if you customize to the individual person. Yeah. So what happens when you customize an experience? Yeah, I think this is so important why we get off scripts. Right? I feel like right, scripts right, right. Were, were the way to do things for the longest time until we realized that people just – to your point, it became the experience became commoditized. But did I cut you short? I yeah, yeah, but that's all right. But but scripts is a good thing, a good thing to point out because yeah, they're often we tell people what to say, and that can be good in some situations. But in most situations, let them get off script by telling them here's the intention you want to get across. Right, you got the what, you got the how, and here's the why. Now do it in your own way. Yeah. Right. So it'll be. So it does. Because for, for some people, scripts becomes rote. Right. And becomes fake. And right. that. But do it in your own way. Make it fresh and live every time. Well, it's funny because you talk about in the book. You give. I think it's four different types. It's it's uh, street performance, stage performance, um, uh, mirror, um, uh, matching performance, and then there's um, uh, there's one other platform. One. Platform. Right. Is that different from stage? Well, yeah, actually, platform is a stage. There's improv. Improv, sorry. Third, right? So there's improv, stage, um, match, yeah. and street, or I yeah. think maybe, I, if I'm butchering this, I apologize. No, that's right. We, we say improv platform, which is being on stage. Platform is what you're just talking about, where you have a script and you say the same lines every time. Right, and I think that, and I was trying to figure out which one is the restaurant industry, but I think the truth of the matter is we leverage all of those right. things. Right, and, 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 and that's a good thing. It's yeah. not a bad thing to leverage all of them. So you see, like in fine dining, to me, that's more staged because it's a, you're, you're, you're setting an expectation, and I think that it's about the, the, the execution of the thing over time, like it's consistency of, right. of finally executing something. Right. Um, but then there's street performance in the sense of, and I think that's where we should lean in this direction of customizing the experience, matching the guests in any moment. So whenever they come, right. you know, you're, we're, you know, almost improv street performance. What's going yeah, on? That's, that's exactly what um, uh, street performance is, is it's mass customizing. You have routines, you have modules, you have bits and, and in Commedia dell'arte in in Italy, they would call them lazi, mm. uh, or these routines that you do in response, particularly to triggers. Right, yes. this thing happens, then I do this. If this, then that. Right. So, like, let me go back to Pike Flakes Fish Markets. I love this. Um, they do this little routine where they they give the fish CPR. Right, they're beating <laughs> on its heart. They're pretending to uh, to blow into its mouth and so forth. And and the trigger is is whenever they drop the fish. 
Right, so you throw it up there, and maybe it's a guest that's doing it, and they drop it, and then and then they go, they have the big look of surprise in their eyes, and they put it down on the counter, and they start giving it CPR. Right, so it's a beautiful routine that recovers from the fact that hey, they just dropped a fish on the floor. Yeah. Right, nobody yeah. wants to see that. So, uh, so you can think about that too in terms of when when glasses are broken, uh, when the uh, when a uh, meal is sent back to the kitchen, or a, or a wine bottle sent back. You know, what what are the routines that you want to be able to recover for that? And turn it into an even better experience where you're exactly. glad it happened. I mean, yeah. it's one of the things you're glad this trigger happened. If something bad happened, so you could show off. And these are rituals. And you think of like this. This all ties back to culture. Like this trigger is a ritual to to trigger a bit where we recover. And we and it looks like it's it's natural, but like we, you know what I'm saying? Like it's the, all these little things you can do. You can make them ritualistic and make right. them a part of your culture. Um, but it's just it's just powerful stuff. Um, right. I forget where we're, our train of thought so, was. So transformations. Okay. <laughs> so now you forgot and I remembered. Yeah. So so transformations are um, is with, when you customize an experience, right? What happens when you design an experience that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the experience that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but turn into what we often call a life-transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way. And that's a transformation. So it's a series of experiences over time with an intention, a purpose to change the end user. So I think what you say in the book is that the 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 customer becomes the product. Right, right. With transformations, the customer is the product. They have an aspiration. They're hiring you to basically achieve that aspiration. Think about going to a fitness center. Right, people only go to fitness centers because they want to go from flabby to fit. And mm-hmm. notice the from two, right? It's a key thing with transformations. There's a from and then there's a two. Or maybe I want to get washboard abs or I want to fit into the swimsuit I did last summer. You, know, you have this more customized uh, uh, individual personal aspiration, but generally, you know, flabby to fit is a good general one. And, uh, and, and, and you're hiring them to do it. The problem is most fitness centers are charging you at an experience level with a monthly membership fee. And as long as you pay that fee, they don't care whether you come in or not, right? But when you get to a level of working with a personal trainer, yeah. right, who cares yeah. and who will do everything it takes to sit on you and get you to fulfill your your aspiration, then they re- recognize that they're in the, the transformation business. Right. Um, so Restaurant Unstoppable's mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I full heartedly, really my mission is to tra- change the world. Yeah. And I think that if we can transform the industry, we have the ability to change the world. But I think what I want my listeners to understand that they are in the, the way we transform the world is by transforming the consumer. So it trickles down. Right. You know, right. I'm here to help you know that you have transformative power. And then if you improve yourself and you improve the people that work for you, you will, you'll improve the communities. So I think the question we need to start asking ourselves is what, what transformation do we want to provide right. to our consumer? Are we making them healthier? Are we making them more cautious, mind, mindful of sustainability? Like, or more adventurous. Or more adventurous, happier, whatever right. it is. Like, right. like, so like in terms of transformation, where are the opportunities for restaurant owners to transform the consumer? Right. So there are, um, I mean, you just listed a, a number of them. There, there's basically, those are all the two statements is how do you, how do you, what do you want to transform them to? Um, the most obvious one is having something to do with being healthy. Um, but also there are things around, Opening up your senses, opening up your minds to new possibilities, uh, be, like, like becoming more adventurous, uh, being able to to taste in different ways and experience in different ways that you can then go apply to other experiences that you have. 
uh, understand the connections. An obvious one also too is is turn me into a cook, right? Where I can do this for myself. I'll I'll, I'll give you one um, uh, uh, one of my favorite examples here is 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 you know with the name Cacciatore, right? You got to know Italy. Right? <laughs> I've heard of Italy. There's one in New York. There's one in Chicago. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you got to go. You got to go. You're it's right. the best. It's the most vibrant retail experience in the world. I'm right. I'm on my way to Chicago right now. All right, now. you got to go to the one in <laughs> Chicago. Uh, my wife recommends the lemon chicken. Okay. And um, um, so Italy is everything Italian food. In fact, their theme, right? Go back to that theme. Their theme is journey through um, um, culinary Italy. Right, that's their theme, and so they you can see different spots within Italy. They tell you this stuff is from southern Italy, this is northern Italy, and 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 so forth, and uh, so they sell in their commodities. Right, you can buy you know, raw fish, you can uh, buy cuts of meat, you can um, buy organic produce, and so forth. They sell physical goods. You can buy you know, cooked pasta. You can buy uh, processed meat and so forth. You can buy uh, utensils and appliances in order to cook Italian food. They sell services, right? The normal merchandising services of all retailers, uh, as well as uh, quick food, um, um, uh, you know, qu- quick food takeaway. Then they sell experiences. They have a cafe in there. They have usually two, three, four re- different restaurants in there. And it's sort of like you're, 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 you're walking around picking up your groceries and all of a sudden you find yourself in line for a restaurant <laughs> that you didn't know was there. Uh, and it's wonderful uh, experience that they provide in the restaurant. And then they have an admission feed cooking school. Uh-huh. Right, and every one of them, mission. One of them, New York, they actually have a museum as well. But they have an admission fee cooking school to turn you into an Italian chef. And guess what? You become an Italian chef. What are you going to do? You're going to buy the goods. You're going to buy everything yeah. they have for sale, including going to the restaurants more to learn yeah. new recipes and tastes and, and so forth. So there's an example of of you know, I, I say it's the most vibrant uh, retail experience in the world, and it's it's putably a, a, a grocery store, right? That's yes. what you would say it is, but it has all of these things wrapped together into one vibrant place. So really, let's let's, let's take this down to a smaller scale, it's where somebody could like w- with one restaurant kind of replicate this. And I think of like a health food restaurant, yeah. right? So like really, like you're selling food, but what you're selling, think bigger. How can I transform my target? market my target individual where are they trying to be in their life cycle uh, and how can i help them get there using by creating services to steer them in that direction so so for example my uh so this is strategic intent yeah and one of my nephews uh worked in the restaurant at lifetime fitness and it's you know you didn't think of fitness centers as actually having restaurants you know before they they did it that i know of um but you you can imagine how can a restaurant in a fitness center fulfill the greater mission of the fitness center, right? For example, by teaching you how to eat well. And it could be based on the things that you're doing in the fitness center and the reason why you're there and customizing things uh, uh, to them and showing how they can do this for themselves right. and, and how they eat and how they how they prepare, how they cook. Right. So, like, there's a million things we can do today, I think, along that line of, like, the, the, the food as medicine, food as health, where, like, you can get them to buy into a membership, Right, right, where you're starting them here, right. and you're getting them there, and part of that is helping them understand, like, take them through the journey of wellness and what does that look like. Yes. Is it just what you eat? No, you might have to get your DNA tested to find out what food right. is right for you. So you're giving them information, you're walking them down, that you're you're guiding them through right. this this journey of helping them become the better version of themselves. And hey, guess what? It's not just what you eat. 
it's your habits and your routines and right. the people you, you surround yourself with. So now you can create community to, to have accountability, yep. to help people get collectively where we're going. And you can't do it on your own, but you can help them find the other thems. Right. You know, so these are all things you can do. And then, hey, like to your point, like we'll feed you. You can come in and eat, but like, we'll also send you a customized meal kit specific yep. to you in your DNA coding or whatever your goals are. Right. So now you can tie in the in-store experience to the at-home meal kit delivery experience and be holistic. Plus, plus giving them the experience of making the food, right? With right. A, with a mise en place sort of setup. And now we're going to turn you in, into a chef. And oh, by the way, let me come to your home, right? Cook you a meal there, show you how to use some of the things you've got, the appliances you got here and you haven't. Yeah. Show, we'll talk about what's on your shelves and what you need to get rid of and, and, right. and, and what you need to add and so forth. There's I mean, so I, much you could do with the Lifestyle brand comes to mind. It's really becoming more, less about just the food, but really a lifestyle and helping people achieve the lifestyle that appeals to their psychographic. Right. And I think there's so many different verticals, but I think it comes back down to conscious capitalism is this, this mm -hmm. idea of people. I think we are more mindful, more. I think it's it's trendy to be to, to work on mindfulness. Like how many like middle aged white dudes were using words like emotional intelligence 15 years ago, like standard, you know, like IQ, EQ, IQ, you know, like these types of things. Um Empathy wasn't a common word for most people back in the day. And this idea of just living intentionally and being mindful, um, it's, I think that's, in my opinion, like, I think that's, that's what conscious capitalism is. And I think we're moving away from this place of goods and keeping up with the Joneses. But like, if I want to be seen, like, what is, what is the, what is the capitalism or the, the money of the future? I think it's social status based off of how people see me and the good I do. Is that a stretch? Yeah, well, there's a there's a thinker by the name of Pierre Boudreau who talks about cultural capital. Yeah, and that's I think exactly in line with what you're talking about. And I, is there? I mean, you know, the economy is better than I do. Is that a, are we moving in that in that direction? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And it and it gets into the, you know, there's there's economy in terms of what you are what you are producing your economic offerings, but there's also in terms of how you run your business, right, and what your way of managing is. And that's where I think that the conscious capitalism and having a meaningful purpose gets into is how are you managing a company? And you need to manage it, as my colleague Kim Korn says, to thrive forever, mm. to, to have a way of managing that allows you to not you know, rise up and then fall into mediocrity and eventually fail. But how do you, how do you thrive forever by constantly regenerating what your competitive advantage right. uh, is? I think this is what Simon Sinek calls the infinite game. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, we used to be in this game of playing the finite game where it was about being the best. Right. Uh, and I, I think he, he and I know you're economists in, in a way he talks about Adam Smith and the going back to the 17th century economist mm -hmm. making it about your business is really to add value to everybody it touches. And then Milton Friedman came around in the 1970s and said, no, it's about returning money for stakeholders. <laughs> well, it's not quite <laughs> what he said, but uh, what Milton did he say? Let uh, me, well, me understand. Well, uh, it, it starts with uh, uh, Frederick Hayek and, and Joseph Schumpeter yeah. um, about um, the fact that, uh, it, it, that, that the economy is about creative destruction, is what Schumpeter said. And, and what you need in it, so you always have companies that are failing because they don't catch the, the right wave, because they don't innovate, because they don't uh, um, work on thriving. Uh, and others will come up and supplant them, and then eventually, you know, they'll get thrown down, and so forth. Is generally what happens, and that's why you need to 
create as much creative destruction inside the organization and within its ecosystem as there is outside, or eventually the outside eventually swamps you. Yeah. Right. And what um, and, and Hayek was all about uh, about freedom. If you give people freedom to make their choices, they'll make far better choices than than the government will in making Autonomy. them for you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so freedom did say that uh, uh, it is about the owners of the firm and doing what's right for them. But um, it is, again, relative to having government come in and tell you what to do and how you need to operate. And also in, um, uh, in, in, in uh, giving you that freedom, um, but also recognize that, that what is best for the shareholders is, first of all, best for the customers. And that's what people sort of, they think like, oh, we're shareholders at the expense of customers. No, what you want to do is you want to provide your customers with what they want. You want to you give them what they need, what they value. And that will then provide the most, the most um, uh, return for, uh, for the shareholders. Yeah, I think it's just the question what's been shifting over time is what does the consumer want and value? I think over time it was, you know, more for less, you know, uh, and I think we might be getting away from that. What the consumer now wants as it, the consumer becomes a little more conscious is what are your thoughts on that? Well, well more for more for less is basically commoditization. Yeah. Right. And yeah, they want to do that with economic offerings. So they get more for less. Right. That makes sense. Um, but they also want different types of things, different qualities of offerings, uh, different economic offerings, including uh, experiences and transformations mm-hmm. that right now are, I mean, the, the theme restaurant industry is one where you can say where there the really is an experience that's been commoditized. Um, but otherwise, it, it resists that commodization more because it's more personal to you. Uh, you know, the experiences happen inside of us in reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. Yeah. So they're inherently personal and transformations change us from the inside. So they resist that commodization more than other economic offerings. It just feels like the, we're moving in this direction that the that we're cutting deeper with the consumer. Um, yep. Is that safe to say? Yep. Um, anything that has well, not come well, out. Well, again, the deeper the consumer related to what I just said, commodities, goods, services exist outside of us. Experiences, transformations exist inside of us, right? So you are reaching inside of people and that makes them uh, very different than, than uh, the prior or the lower level economic offerings. Got it. Joe, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. I want to respect the time we made here together uh, or set aside. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you think my listeners should hear? Well, I'll mention one thing that they probably won't know how to operationalize today at all, but maybe 10, 20 years, right? Again, you are what you charge for. What do you charge for transformations? And it's the demonstrated outcome that your customers achieve. Because with transformations, inputs don't matter. It doesn't matter what food we give them. It doesn't matter... Uh, even the experience they have, unless it makes a difference in their lives, unless it moves them along the path, generally not one life-transforming experience we have in a restaurant, but something that helps move them along the path of achieving their aspirations. And as you pointed out earlier, that the, the customer is the product, and therefore you need to charge for that changed customer. And that's charging based off of outcomes rather than inputs. Their outcomes, the value of Their them. outcomes, yeah, not yours, not, right, exactly, their outcomes. Because unless you align... You know, you know, with all offerings, unless you align what you charge for with what your customers value, right? You're not going to create as much economic value. And, and so what we need to align with transformations is our income with our customers' outcomes. Yeah. 
Again, the book is The Experience Economy, Competing for Customers' Time, Attention, and Money. Holding the book up right here. If you're looking at the video, that's what the cover looks like. Uh, and uh, you, you have a couple other books out there. Um, I, I want to give you an opportunity to plug those guys as well. Yeah, so we, we mentioned authenticity. Mm-hmm. What consumers really want, if you really, particularly after reading the experience comedy, you worry about authenticity and what it means. You have got questions there. That's a book to to do. Uh, the original book, Mass Customization, is uh, actually out of print finally uh, after about 20, 20, 25 years. And, uh, but there are two great chapters in the experience economy on it. Uh, and then uh, there's uh, Infinite Possibility, um, Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier. So that's about how you use digital technology to fuse the real and the virtual, like you see at La Petite Chef, La Petite Chef restaurants with them them uh, putting images down on your plate and having a little character yeah. give you a little show on there. Is that your mo- your most recent book? Uh, yeah, well, before the re-release of the Experience Economy, yeah. I'm going to have to get my hands on that one for sure. Right. Uh, and how can we connect with you if we really enjoyed? I know you guys also, you, you have your uh, strategic horizons where you uh, you're, you label yourself a thinking studio dedicated to helping businesses conceive and design new ways of adding value to their economic offerings. So what if we want to outsource you to help yeah. us with that? Yeah, the, so you can go to strategichorizons.com, strategichorizons with an S.com. Uh, and there's uh, and learn all about us. Uh, there's a uh, place on the contact page there that if you opt in, you can get our quarterly field notes newsletter that talks about some of the interesting things going on in the experience economy, as well as talks about our um, uh, events and our writings. So you know we, we publish something new, we ship it out there, and we have our um, uh, again our, our experience economy expert certification course. You can find out about there. We do coaching for chief experience officers called X Coach. And you can always just LinkedIn with me, you know, Joe Pine on LinkedIn will get you right to me. Uh, and, uh, and so we can always have a conversation there. Beautiful. And uh, this is episode 1053. Woo! Yeah. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one. Actually, I'm sorry. It's 1054. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 1054. Uh, we'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to the books recommended. We'll have a link to the experience economy. We'll have links to connect with Joe, his LinkedIn account. And um, Joe, this is where I say, actually, I am curious. Who do you think I should talk to? This is something I usually ask all my restaurant tour guests to recommend me to the next restaurant owner doing good stuff. But in terms of authors out there, people who are really challenging the status quo and thinking like, what's that next level of thinking that I should, should be on my radar? Oh, well, there, there are so many interesting things uh, out there. Um, the um, uh, There's a number of books on experiences, including uh, James Wallman's um, uh, Stuffocations and Time and How to Spend It. Are great books. Uh, Matt Dearden and Bob Rossman have a book on designing experiences. Um, I'm just reading a book by Brad McLean on uh, designing transformative experiences, which is uh, quite interesting to take you to that uh, that uh, uh, next level. Um, and uh, and uh, you know and and. You, you, we're currently in my conference room, so we walk out the doors. We'll have my office, which is wall to wall books and and so forth, and some I haven't classified yet. So I can easily point out some awesome. some further ones for you as well. Thank you very much, Joe. And uh, this is where I say there is no question, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you. Cheers. 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. What a great way to pop off 2024 uh, with this idea of spreading the knowledge that we are in the experience economy and that the experience economy is transforming into the transformation economy. Um, And, you know, it's just really exciting because our mission here at Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the world. And we're going to do that by transforming the restaurant industry. And I just kind of feel excited that I'm on the right track. And when I talk to these people who are way more intelligent than I am, and they reinforce the work we're trying to do here at Restaurant Stoppable, it just feels good. And hopefully we're inspiring you to be in the same business of transformation. Are you playing the infinite game? You know, I think this is a perfect example of what the infinite game is, of having a mission that there is no end line. There is just this mission that you're serving and that you're just constantly improving the people that you're, you're coming in contact with, whatever your mission might be. But keep in mind that time is money and that if you are providing an experience for somebody and that experience is compounding over time to the point where if people continue to have this experience, you're transforming them, then really the sky is the limit in what you can be charging these people uh, to, to make them better, to help transform them, whatever your mission might be. Uh, so I hope hope that you found inspiration in today's episode. Um, and, you know, your guest is your product. You know, just just keep that in mind. So awesome stuff here. Uh, Thank you again to Joe Pine for going deep into how we can look at our businesses through a different lens. And really all the stuff that I think most people talk about in terms of how to run your restaurant. That's like, you know, one one oh one. If you want to be profitable, you have to start thinking about different business models and how you can get creative to really push the envelope. And I think that's the, the stuff that I want to chase going forward here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And speaking of going forward here at Restaurant Unstoppable, we are still trying to get into an RV. I haven't given up on that. I spent most of the end of January and early February talking to financial advisors. Our plan is to um, get a new tax season on record that will really help leverage my uh, ability to get the funding I need. We're going to try to get a new truck. We're going to try to get a truck RV. This is all going to be happening in February. So I'll be in the Northeast for the rest of uh, January doing some local stuff and also being really focusing on launching the new version of Restaurant Unstoppable. We're going to have a new website, restaurantstoppable.com. We're going to have a new community feature of Restaurant Unstoppable Network uh, that we'll be relaunching in Q1. And we'll be doing some coaching in 2024. All exciting things coming at you. We are transforming ourselves. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.